We're in the book of Revelation. We're going to continue on in our study this morning. This tremendous book that we've been looking at verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I love, love, love the sound of children in the room. It's what makes us a family. Amen? Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 11 is where we are today. Revelation 11. This is a longer passage, and we're going to try to move through it today. I'm still obviously learning how to work my remote. Revelation 11, let's read it together. John here writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rise, rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven. Sorry. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at the hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, 
and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of our God to us this morning. What a contrast from what we just experienced with our child dedication service. To go from that time of celebration, of of joining in with these families who have said, I want to raise my kids to love the Lord, to love serving Him, and to go to a passage of Scripture like this. We're in the thick of Revelation, church. We're into some meaty stuff here, and there's, there's so much here. There's so much that we could try to cover this morning. And as I thought about what we have been doing and working through uh, chapter 11 verse by verse with you, as, as has been our custom, I thought, I just can't do it. We literally would be here till about 7 o'clock this evening. And so if, if any of you, let me just a disclaimer here, if any of you feel like I've given you a, uh, a I've, I've served a, 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 an injustice to you by not studying through every verse of chapter 11 with you, come and see me in private and we'll do a personal Bible study together, verse by verse through this chapter. I'm going to do something different with this text this morning. Uh, we're going to look at three questions because there's just too much here to cover in one uh, in one message on a Sunday morning. But I found that answering these three questions about Revelation chapter 11, answering these three questions from the first three verses, so we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 3, answering these questions is absolutely essential for understanding the rest of the chapter. If, if we can come to uh, answers of what of these three questions from the first three verses, I think you'll have the tools necessary to understand the rest of chapter 11. And if, again, I'm here for your benefit, I'm here for your help and assistance, and so if you have questions about chapter 11 that you feel like I have not addressed, I would love to to schedule some time with you, or if we need to do a, a small group Bible study or something of that nature, I'm happy to do that. But I want to spend our time answering these three questions, and then we're going to draw just a couple points of application. So here's question number one. Let's dive right in together. What is the temple? Now, we know what the temple in Jerusalem was, and we know that it was destroyed and rebuilt and then destroyed again. But what is the temple that John sees here? In Revelation chapter 11, in verse 1, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 11, John is told to measure the temple. Is this temple that John sees a literal building, or is this symbolism? I agree with the majority of scholars, certainly all of the ones that I've read, they agree that this is a reference to the church, that this indeed is a symbolic temple that John sees. It's not an actual temple that John sees here. Bible scholars are pretty much in agreement on this, that this is symbolism. Now, I could unpack an argument for you right now and explain to you reason by reason that they think this. But let me just talk about one aspect of this. God's people are often called the temple in the New Testament. And let me show you some scriptures. Sorry, I had the, I'm having technology issues today. <laughs> often in scripture, God's people are referenced as the temple. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, the passage you see on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, and, and he says this, Do you not know that you, 
to the Corinthian Christians. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I love the letter of 1 Corinthians in this regard. I'm not going to show you these other passages, but at different points, Paul makes this assertion. And one time, he uses the singular word for you in the Greek. One time, he uses the plural word for you in the Greek, speaking specifically about the Corinthian church. And another time, he uses the plural word for you in the Greek, speaking of the global church or of the larger church. What, is, what should we draw from that? The Holy Spirit dwells in each one of you. If you are a Christ follower, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then the Holy Spirit is in you. But the Holy Spirit also, in a very real, powerful way, church, and this is important for where we're heading with this passage, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in you individually, but he also dwells in you collectively. Second Corinthians, Paul makes this statement. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Peter writes to the church, and Peter says this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then also earlier in Revelation, in our study, we saw this back in chapter 3, Jesus himself said, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You are the temple. The temple is no longer a building built by men. The temple is us. We are the temple. You will often hear me correct people who say that this room is a sanctuary. This room, brick and mortar, well, not brick and mortar, wood and drywall, is not a sanctuary. This is a room built by people the beautiful part of that church is that if, and of course we would never want this to happen, but if this building burnt to the ground, Fellowship Baptist Church would be alive and well, amen? Because it's not the temple. This is a building. We are the temple of the living God. And that is a beautiful truth to take hold of and to understand. And that's why I don't, just so all parents hear me on this, I don't have a problem when your kids have fun in this room. Kids will do things. To have, they'll run down the hallway. They'll run up on the steps in the platform. They'll jump on the pews. Let them have fun in church, amen? We want them to grow up loving being here. I need to hear an Amen. We want them to grow up loving being here. We do not want them to see this building as the place where they always got scolded. We want them to think of this building as the place they love coming to. It's a building. We're the temple. This is a building. So John is told to measure the temple. John is told to measure the temple. 
It's symbolic for God's spiritual protection and preservation over those who follow Christ. It's important that we understand that this is not security against physical suffering and death. The church in John's age and the church for the last 2,000 years will continue to be persecuted from the time of the writing of this text. So what is being talked about here is spiritual protection, spiritual preservation. John measuring the temple is symbolic of God preserving his church spiritually. It's against spiritual danger that God is providing sanctuary. And you have the quote there from Bible scholar C.H. Talbert who writes, the measuring of the temple's innermost part symbolizes the protection of the faithful from what? Not against persecution, not against violence, but protection against apostasy. The church will be persecuted and they will suffer more. But Peter will write this. Peter writes, but rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Still, in our country, friends, we enjoy religious liberty. Not, not many of us, I, you know, if you have a story, please share uh, with me at some point, but not many of us are in danger of losing a job, certainly not of being arrested, not of, of suffering violence for the name of Christ in our country, at least at this time in our history. That's not a real concern for us, but maybe we would experience what Peter talks about here. Maybe we would be insulted. Maybe we would be, and we have been, called foolish. We have been called ignorant by the great minds of society. The, uh, the new atheists, as they're called. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who's passed away now, and, and many others who would say, oh, you Christians, you're so foolish. How can you believe in a divine being? Don't you realize that science has answered those questions? We don't need God anymore. Or as Nietzsche said many, many years ago, God is dead and we killed him by our reason, by our science. This is probably the only thing that in our nation today we may suffer for the sake of Christ, an insult, criticism, ridicule, maybe an odd look, uh, an awkward stare, a silence in the room that happens when someone knows that you're a Bible-banging evangelical Christian. But suffering, friends, don't forget this. Suffering, according to Scripture, is the pathway to glory. Suffering is the path to glory. Persecution purifies the church. Persecution purifies the church because it's in those times when we are persecuted that we know who's really in and who's out. Because people who are just kind of here for the sake of being here, they're in the crowd, aren't going to keep coming if there's a price to pay for their faith. So suffering is the path to glory. Bible scholar uh, Bruce Metzger talks about this. And he says measuring, he's talking about this passage, and he says measuring is done in order to build and repair, and John is given a measuring rod so that he can restore and revive the church. 
I believe that's why this verse exists here and why John is told to measure the temple, the, the temple being the church, the temple being God's people. So let's review quickly and let's move on. Question number one, what is the temple? I would suggest to you that the temple is symbolic to the church. It's the people of God. Question number two, I think we need to answer about this chapter to understand it, is what is the outer court? I believe this is the persecuted church. I believe this is the persecuted church that we're talking about. And I want to be really clear on this. Bible scholars have many, many theories on what verse 2 means. And so if you look at it and you study it and you come to a different conclusion, that's okay. This is not a fundamental of our faith. This is not a foundational of the Christian faith to come to, for all of us to have the same understanding of what does the, the outer court of the temple in Revelation chapter 11, verse 2 mean. It's not, it's not something that's going to keep you from church membership here. Let me put it that way. There's lots of different theories about this. But it's important for us to understand that the outer court in the actual temple in Jerusalem was part of the temple. So if the temple here is symbolic for the church, to me it makes sense that the outer court is part of the church. In verse 2, we read that John is not to measure the court outside the temple, and he's given a reason. If you look back at verse 2, it says, for it is given over to the nations. Now, what are we to make of this? And again, there are many different theories, but I go with what Grant Osborne, he's a, a very well-known, very well-respected conservative, Bible scholar, and Grant Osborne writes this about this verse. He says, there's a double meaning in outer, for it both denotes the court of the Gentiles in the outer portion of the temple area, and also it is outside God's protective presence. It has been given to the Gentiles, meaning God has handed over the church to the Gentiles for a period. So I would look at this verse and say that this is the church being persecuted for a time. It's being persecuted for a time. In the end, the church will be triumphant, but for a season, a portion of the people of God will suffer persecution. Question number one, what is the temple? I would suggest it's the church, the people of God. Question number two, what is the outer court? I would suggest to you that this is a part of the church that will suffer for a season, and that brings us to verse 3, where two new characters are introduced. And just like when we talked about the four horsemen uh, several weeks ago and how that was one of the most common images that people think about when they think about the apocalypse or, or end times or in theology, we call it eschatology. Uh, the book of Revelation, people always think about the four horsemen. People also always think about the two witnesses. So let me give you my thinking on what this verse means. We're in verse 3 now. And let me just tell you again, no shock here, but Bible scholars disagree what verse 3 is talking about and, what, and who these two witnesses are. There are many different theories. Some uh, say that it's Elijah and Moses, that the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses who God has brought back into the storyline. Others say it's Peter and Paul. Some say Isaiah or Jeremiah. The most common view among Bible scholars, and it's the one that I hold, is that this too is symbolic. That the two witnesses are not actual people, but that it's symbolism. 
Uh, Bible scholar Robert Mounts, again, very well-respected conservative Bible scholar, writes, but who are these two witnesses and what did they symbolize in John's vision? Some identify them as two literal prophetic figures who will arise at the end. Bible scholar Robert Mounts says it is more likely, however, that they are not two individuals but a symbol of the witnessing church in the last tumultuous days before the end of the age. The two witnesses, my view of this, if you disagree, again, that's okay. But my view is that the two witnesses represent the prophetic witness of the church. So we have the temple, it's the whole church. We have the outer court, that's a part of the church that's going to be persecuted. And we have these two witnesses. That's the prophetic witness of the church. This is the church, the part of the church. And I say the part of the church because even today we see this. And friends, as we get closer and closer to the end, when all of this is going to come to a conclusion, I think we're going to see it more and more. We're going to see that only part of the church is going to have a prophetic witness into the world. And haven't we begun to see that already? Where churches have caved on the gospel message. Where churches only preach part of the Bible. They only preach the parts of the Bible that are palatable for people to hear. Some, some of you, and I would not fault you with this, I kind of wondered myself, boy, is this a great passage to preach when we're having a child dedication service? I mean, look at me. I'm surrounded by two gifts right now, and I'm preaching revelation to you. And it's not actually an, an easy passage to preach, right? I mean, come on, Pastor Terry, couldn't you have preached something this morning a little more fun and happy? Listen, we're living in a day, friends. We're not every church is preaching all of this book. Some have moved away from chunks of it. There are some churches that do not talk about hell anymore. Why? Because that runs people back out the door. There are some churches that do not talk about sin anymore. Why? Because that runs people back out the door. I don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't want to go to church and hear about hell. I don't want to go to church and hear about sin and judgment. And churches have decided to move away, some have decided to move away from the clear teaching of all 66 books of this Bible. We will not be one of those. So here we are. The two witnesses represent the prophetic witness of the church. This is the part of the church committed to proclaiming the kingdom. Brothers, this is how we fight. I love that worship song. My wife really loves it. Uh, this is how we fight our battles, and, and, and it's on our knees, right? It's, it's certainly part of how we fight. We fight in prayer, without a doubt. That movie War Room, how many of you have seen War Room? I can, I'll be able to see silhouettes of hands, yeah, Right? That's certainly how we fight. But this is how we fight. We fight with bold witness. We fight with love. We fight with prayer. We fight with the truth, church. That's how we fight our battles. There's so much more that we could look at in this chapter. But I think answering those three questions will equip you to better understand the rest. And again, if you study through it, and you have more questions, I'm here for you to help you. Um, and I can certainly suggest some good resources as well. 
So I would encourage you to do your own study. But we need to move to application as time is quickly leaving us. So how should we apply Revelation chapter 11 to our lives? I have two ideas for your consideration this morning. First of all, followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus should partner together to fulfill the Great Commission. Some of you are thinking, no, Pastor Terry, didn't you just preach this last week? Uh, kind of, but I'm building on it. Okay, I'm going to build on what we talked about last week a little bit. Bible scholar Craig Keener, the quote's there for you. He writes this. He says, if, and it's an if, right? But my belief, Craig Keener agrees, many others agree, if the two witnesses are the church, they provide a direct model for us. We must therefore be spirit-empowered witnesses to the world, ready to pay any cost and utterly dependent on God's power to accomplish his purposes. Listen to what he writes. Our own witness may not always bring a person or a culture to Christ by itself, but our witness contributes to the broader witness of the entire prophetic remnant of the church. Last week, I gave you a very simple plan, and, and, and from what I could see, you guys took that action step, because I walked out after talking with people and spending 15, 20 minutes in this room at the end of the service, I walked out there, and most of the books, Bible study books that I had set out on the table were gone, and the cards were gone, the gospel cards. So it seems like a lot of you left here with that plan. And I, and I pray for you. I pray that you've taken some steps with that, that, that you are working that very simple plan I gave you last Sunday morning about being intentional, identifying one or two or three people in your life that you want to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ with, about being prayerful, praying for those people, praying for that individual, about being respectful. And being respectful is just about accepting someone where they are today. Whatever they believe about God and about faith, just being respectful and listening to them and listening to their story. I pray that you're being truthful, that when it's your turn to share in the conversation, that you won't back down from the truth, that you won't back down from the gospel message, but that you will be able to clearly communicate to the people that you are witnessing to the beauty of the gospel message, that God loves you, but your sin has kept you from God and you couldn't do anything about that. So Jesus came and he did it all. And he was born and he died on the cross and he rose again to new life. And when he did that, he conquered sin in the grave and Satan and he paid the penalty for all of our sins and he extended his perfect righteousness onto us so that if you believe and trust in him alone for your salvation... God, the righteous judge, no longer sees your sin, but God sees the perfection of his son and welcomes you into relationship with him. What on earth about that message should we be embarrassed about? It's beautiful. The love of a father for lost children. It's a beautiful message, and I, and I pray that you're being truthful as you share the gospel. And then I pray that you're being authentic that you're just being real with people and you're sharing your story and how God has changed your life.
building on that idea this week, I want you to consider maybe teaming up with someone else here or maybe a group of people here or maybe a group of people who don't even go to this church. Maybe you're a part of a, a, I see people in the room, I know, Arlene and others that, you know, you're part of a Bible study fellowship or you have friends who are Christians and they don't even go to Fellowship Baptist Church. Maybe you're going to team up with one or two or three of them and you're going to do this work of evangelism with them. I think whenever possible, church, we should work together. We really are better together. Yeah, just because we're going to connect with different people differently. I am so blessed already. Can I just say this real quick? I am so blessed already by Pastor Ken and by Pastor Ken Steele being here and being on our staff. And, and Ken and I are wired differently. We have different skill sets and, and all of that. And we're better together as pastors here. Listen, I think that's true of the whole body. When we work together, we bring strengths and abilities, and, and God has gifted us different ways, different spiritual gifts, different things about us and the way he's wired us, different personalities, different temperaments. And when we work together, we're better. So I want you to ask that question this morning. How can we partner with other Christ followers to share the hope that we have in Jesus and to make disciples. And, and I'm suggesting we do that in, in a variety of ways, small groups here at the church, but also by working with people outside of the church and doing partnership with other ministries and other community initiatives. Some of you have amazing roles. I mean, all of you do, but some of you are, st are strategically placed in our society, in, in our community. It, you have roles in business, you have roles in education, right? You have different jobs that give you opportunities with so many people. All of us do. All of us do if we're willing to look for them. But I just pray that we really get a hold of this idea and we learn what it means to work together for the kingdom. Amen? Amen. The second thing that I would encourage you to, to think about here is that followers of Jesus who are taking risks shouldn't be surprised by signs and wonders. Now, again, you might think, well, how is this an action step of Revelation chapter 11? Go back and read through that whole passage again. See what happens. <laughs> see, what, see what the two witnesses do and what happens when they're attacked. And, uh, and everything that happens, you see signs and wonders and the miraculous. Now, if these two witnesses are symbolic for the church, what that tells me is that in the church age, in the latter days, as we approach the end of time, we're going to see the miraculous happen, church. But have you ever wondered, why don't we see miracles today? Have you ever thought about that? You know, you read the Bible, you read the book of Acts, you read the Gospels, you read all of the miracles that Jesus did, and you even read about Peter in the book of Acts, and Jesus said this. He said, you guys are going to do greater things than what you've seen me do. And they must have been sitting there thinking, are you kidding me? Jesus, we watched you raise a dead man. He had, he had been dead for four days, and he said, Lazarus, come out. And he came out of his tomb. And we're going to do things that are greater than that? And then Peter, with the power of the Holy Spirit, walks down a a street months later and people who are sick laying on the street, his shadow falls on them and they're healed. 
He doesn't even touch them. He doesn't even say anything to them. He's literally just walking down the street, and people are bringing sick people to, to be under Peter's shadow, and they're healed. It's the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. And we read these kinds of stories, and we see everything that happens in the Bible, and we think, why doesn't this stuff happen more today? Listen. Is it because that this kind of thing only happened in biblical times? I don't believe so. And forgive me if that sounds very unbaptist, but I don't believe that the miraculous was only for biblical times. How sad. Let me say it to you this way. I might lose my Baptist membership card with this statement, but I don't care. How sad if in our denomination we are not looking for the supernatural. How sad if in the Baptist denomination we are not open to it. Listen, we should want God to move. We, we should want God to move in radical ways. The Bible assumes that miracles, signs, and wonders are going to continue until the very end of the age. Revelation chapter 11, I believe, is a great proof text for that. But also, let's look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... We're not there yet. The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. What's Paul saying? He's saying, we're not there yet. We are not to the place where we are seeing Christ and the fulfillment of everything we believe yet face to face. Paul says, I know, now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. We're not yet to heaven, church. And so all of the miracles, all of the things, all of the signs and wonders still have a place for today. And throughout church history, we see it. Church, listen, people still walk on water. A, a witnessing church will see Miracles. I'm just going to share one example in closing here. Our time is gone. I just want to share this one example real quick. Brother Andrew, many of you know his story. If you've never read the book, God Smuggler, you have to read God Smuggler. It's the most amazing story. This brother in Christ who's been called the missionary to the world, he's 92 years old, he's still alive, still kicking at 92, still about the Great Commission at 92 years old. He's most famous, though, for smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain when it was illegal to do so. How many of you remember the Iron Curtain? That's like such old news now. I feel like such an old man. But I grew up, when I was a junior high and senior high, I grew up under the shadow of the Iron Curtain. And I got this newsletter from a Christian minister. I have no idea how I signed up for this. It was probably some missionary who came to my church when I was a kid. And I signed up for this newsletter. And I would always get this newsletter once a month behind the Iron Curtain. And it was all of the ministry that was happening in, the, in what used to be called the Soviet Union. Well, Brother Andrew spent decades smuggling Bibles in his car behind the Iron Curtain. At a time when each Bible would have been worth a year in prison. 
Had he been caught, he would have been arrested and he would have spent that many years in prison. He would bring hundreds of Bibles with him. He would drive up to the border of that country and this is the prayer that he would always pray. You see it on the screen. He would pray this prayer. Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. So when he first started doing this, he'd have like a small box in the trunk, right? And they'd be hidden underneath clothes and that kind of thing. But as time went on, he just got more bold and more bold. Pretty soon he's got stacks of Bibles on the seat next to him in the car. And he drives up to the border. He prays his prayer. The guard's like, oh, yep, looks good. Moving along. Of course, they said it in Russian or Romanian or whatever country he was going into, right? The miraculous church still happens. This isn't biblical times I'm talking about. This is 30, 40, 50 years ago. Miracles still happen. There's still stories coming out of around the world of missionaries who are doing radical things. Here's what I want to say. I want to know this kind of power in my lifetime. Not, not for me. I, I can't do squat. I just want to see it. I want to experience it. Anybody here with me today? I, 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 want, I want to know, I want to experience the power of God. I want to, I want to live the book of Acts, church. I don't think I have yet. But I, I want to. I want to see that kind of power. Now, listen, my theology says, and I, I believe that God will decide when the miraculous happens, and I can't force it. I can't conjure it. I can't, I can't make it happen. God's going to do it. God is going to decide when and where he shows up and, and how miracles happen. However, it seems that both in the Bible and in church history that his followers set the conditions for the miraculous. And how did they do it? Here's how they did it. They got out of the safety of the four walls of the church and they went boldly into the community. That's how the conditions were set. Again, let me, one more quote here. Bible scholar Craig Keener says this, miracles in the Bible appear most frequently where? In, in the safety of the four walls, right? When we're just kind of playing church and everything is nice and neat and comfortable and it's all about us. Is that what Bible scholar Craig Keener says? Someone answer me. Thank you. Okay, good. Every, everyone's with me. Miracles in the Bible appear most frequently on the cutting edge on the cutting edge of God's activity, especially spreading the good news of the kingdom. I've witnessed them far more when believers have been breaking new ground with the gospel than when we have become self-absorbed with our own comfort. This side of paradise. Listen, this side of heaven, we should not be looking for retirement. The side of heaven, we should not be thinking it's all about us. Even in heaven, it's not going to be all, all about us. It's going to be about the glory of God. But right now, church, we have a mission to engage. 
And Craig Keener says, only when the church becomes prepared to challenge the idols of society with the claims of Christ will we witness God's power in biblical fullness. If we want to see the power of God at work in our lives, in our church, and in our community, we have to get out of the safety of these four walls, and we have to engage the world. We have to. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Worship team, come and join me. As they come with your heads bowed, I'm just going to ask you this question. Are, are we taking risks? Are we ministering on the edge? Are we getting outside of these walls? Here's a big question for us. What will Fellowship Baptist Church be about in the coming years and, and even the next few decades? What is our church going to be about? Will we be self-absorbed and, and just kind of content with being comfortable, having nice services and nice ministries and for people to come to? Or are we going to have a passion church to break new ground for the gospel? Don't forget about that night, that stormy night when the apostles are in the boat and all of a sudden they see this figure walking towards them on the water. And they were freaked out. And they realize that, whoa, what is this? And Jesus speaks to them and he says, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter, who's maybe not 100% convinced yet, says, well, Lord, if it's really you, if it's really you, then tell me to come to you on the water. And I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing <laughs> Peter was kind of expecting, kind of hoping Jesus would say something like, Peter, don't be silly. You can't walk on the water. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, come on, come on, get out of the boat and walk on the water. Peter does for a time. We you know, we fault Peter, right? Because he starts to sink after a few steps, but he's the only one of the 12 who has the faith to even get out of the boat. And, and for a time, he walks on the water. I believe that Peter learned on that stormy night that it's when we have the faith to step out of the boat that we see the miraculous happen. Church, when we have the faith to step out of our comfort zone, we will see God start to do the miraculous here. Do we want to just be a nice, appropriate church where nothing happens? Or do we want to be a spirit-led, prophetic witness that advances the kingdom until our Lord returns? I want the latter. I, I, I've had enough of the former in my life. I've, I've had enough of nice churches. I've had enough, enough of appropriate churches, churches that aren't willing to do what it takes to advance the kingdom. My prayer for us is that we will be led by the Holy Spirit and that we will have a witness into our neighborhoods and our community and through our missions partners and even through some of us going ourselves and through raising children church. Listen, maybe some of these kids that were dedicated here this morning will grow up to serve Christ in amazing, groundbreaking ways. Maybe this morning 
is where it all started for them. That's the church that I pray Fellowship Baptist will be in the years to come.